0: Hello, There it is. Yeah, it was on. Mike Mahoney. <clears throat> what you did with those tongs there, my friend. Is, Guys, thank you. Thank you. That is all too kind and too gracious. And uh, I was really taken by surprise in first service. I did have a heads up for second service because we've already done this once. Um, but I was, I was genuinely surprised and grateful and appreciative. Um, And uh, my name is Jonathan Swindle. I'm the worship and executive pastor here, and our senior pastors, Jade and Christy Duncan, are on their sabbatical right now. And everything that was said about me, except maybe the athletic part, (laughs) can and should be said about Jade and Christy, and they are... uh, That was a joke. That's a joke. Uh, He's 10 years older than me and still better at basketball, so... Anyways, but I love them and miss them, and they are fantastic pastors of this community. And so thank you so much for the way that you guys honor all of us, all the time. I am genuinely blown away uh, that we are not a church without its flaws, but we really seem to be a church that is intent on being the healthiest version of ourselves that we can be and learning to live with people, one another, that are not like us, that think differently than us, that might vote differently than us. Like we, I have been so impressed over the last few years about the way that we have stuck together and chosen to love one another when it's been difficult. So thank you, you guys are a wonderful church body. Uh, two very, very brief announcements. One, just to highlight Christy's outstanding video, that was wonderful. If, if you are new, enough to where the Eswatini conversation, that was the first you've heard about it, I would really encourage you to go to the table after service and talk to Jessica Ward. I tried to get her up here, and she wasn't having it, y'all. She wasn't having it. So you're going to have to go back there to talk to her. But our partnership with Eswatini and Sanguinee too is the CarePoint itself is a long-term partnership. So this is not a one-off thing that we're doing, and the next month it's going to be something else. And this is, we have a long-term partnership and commitment with this community. And there are so many ways to get involved. Christy listed a number of them. But if none of those work, you can pray with us. You can pray for the people, you can pray for those who are going, you can pray for those that are in communication regularly, so that, that's one. The other is, um, this upcoming weekend is our marriage weekend, and Brent and Jana Sharp are going to be with us. So I've announced it so many times, I just want to say, if you've been intending to register and have not yet, do it immediately, because we're going to be cutting it off very soon. So now the most important thing that I will say all day, are you Ready? It's right up front. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. indeed. Amen. Well, let us pray and posture our hearts before we jump into the word today. Let's pray that the Lord would illuminate our hearts and our minds and open us up and make more room in us for both himself and for other people. Lord, we ask that, uh, that you would open us up in this space and that feels vulnerable sometimes, but we trust you, and we trust your word, and we trust the people around us. And we ask that you would continue to shape us in the image of Jesus today. And for each of us, that will mean different things. It will require different things of us, but we're committed to it. We're committed to following you. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be pleasing to you, our Christ, our Lord, and our Redeemer We ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And together, God's people say, Amen. 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 Well, this is our second installment on our series from the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, we're doing a four-week series on it. Last week, this week. Next week, we'll have a break with the Sharps, and they will be preaching a one-off message. And then I'll come back and finish it out in November. But last week when I preached, truth be told, I didn't actually know the title of the series. The Outsider. Now, to be fair, I wouldn't have changed anything about my message. But as we enter into today, this series is called The Outsider. And if you are anything like me, and I'm going to be careful to only speak on behalf of myself, there are very few times in my life where I have truly felt like an outsider. It's not lost on me that I am a white, middle-aged man in America in 2021, I've traveled pretty extensively, and most of the places that I have been, people speak English. So it's very infrequently that I have felt truly like an outsider. But there are a few times. And for us this morning, I'm going to share one experience where I have felt like an outsider. I want you to think and consider a time where you felt misplaced or displaced. You didn't feel secure, you didn't feel like you belonged. There was a time a number of years ago when I was in Russia, and I was there visiting a team when I was at Oral Roberts University, and I flew into Russia, and there are two major, major airports, and I got picked up by one. I made the mistake of booking a ticket where I flew into one airport, and the place I was staying was substantially closer to the other airport, so I had about a four to five hour drive within Moscow from my airport to the place that I was staying. And I had a chauffeur who didn't speak English. And if you've been to Moscow, it's, it's like any other major, major city, like New York City or Los Angeles. And it is traffic that is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I'm in this car after having traveled about 24 hours and multiple flights with a guy who doesn't speak English, and he had a sign with my name on it. And I'm assuming the whole time that he's taking me to the right place. And after two and three and four hours in this van with a guy that doesn't speak English, I start to think, man, I sure hope that I've not been abducted. (laughs) (laughs) I sure, I mean, really, should it take this long to get to the place we're staying? And it was one of just a handful of times in my life that I truly felt like an outsider. For many of us, those experiences are very infrequent. And as we jump into this story today, we're going to read through chapter two. I'm going to give a little overview of chapter one for those who were not here last week. But I want us to channel that today, channel those thoughts and feelings about what it is like to be in a place, and you're insecure, and you feel like you're at the mercy of other people. So, the story of Ruth, because I don't want to assume that we all know the story of Ruth, the very first verse, reminds us that this story is occurring at the time when the judges ruled. Well, it just so happens that the book of Ruth follows the book of Judges in the canon, And the end of the book of Judges ends with a few chapters of complete and utter chaos and destruction. There is sexual exploitation, there is rape, there is theft, and there is true chaos. If you go back and read about the last three or four chapters of the book of Judges. And it ends with a verse that says, in this time they did what seemed good to themselves because there was no king in the land. The book of Judges tells us a story. It, sh- it, it uh, paints a picture for us about what happens when people in power live according to what is best for them. And ultimately what happens? Chaos, destruction, confusion, the exploitation of the poor and the most vulnerable. And then we come to Ruth 1.1. And Ruth 1-1 says that in the time when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem of Judah. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. And I think that something is happening literarily, not literally, but literarily here. What is being told to us, yes, you like that? What is being told to us is that when people live according to what they think is best, when they live selfishly and for themselves famine will come even to the house of bread. Even the place that is deemed the house of bread will have a famine when everyone is concerned about me, myself, and mine. And so the story in the book of Ruth is essentially a type of answer, a type of response to the book of Judges. If the book of Judges is, by and large, how should we not live, the book of Ruth is, what does it look like when people truly live one for another? And then there is this bit here at the end of chapter 1, because this morning we're going to be reading through chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 22, the, the passage ends with this statement. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So what's with this barley harvest? A couple of things. We're being clued in. First, there is a literal harvest. They left the land of of Bethlehem to go to Moab in chapter 1. And in the first couple of verses, we find out Moab is not, uh, Moab is an is, uh, ancient enemy of Israel, and they go, and Naomi is there with her husband and her two sons, and they marry, and then in just a couple of verses, her husband and her two sons pass away, so there are these three women, and they get word that the famine has ceased, and now there is provision in the land, and so at the, throughout the end of chapter one, they're making the trek back. And we come to the end and we have this verse that there is the barley harvest in the land of Bethlehem. A few things are happening. One, I just mentioned, there is literal end to the famine. So there is physical provision. But also, the time of the barley harvest signified that it was about to be the time of Pentecost or the time of Shavuot. And historically, what that was celebrating is the giving of the law. In this time, and for us, we now look back and we celebrate both the giving of the law and on the day of Pentecost, the giving of the spirit for the birth of the church. So both of those holiday it's one holiday with two historic meanings, and both of them are about God establishing something in the lives of his people. So there is this time where they're coming back, and it's the start of the harvest, and in a few weeks at the end of the story, we're going to be at this time of Shavuot and celebrate the giving of the law and the birthing of the church at the giving of the Spirit. But I want us to pause just for a moment and think. So often we hear stories, and we hear things like, well, now the harvest is beginning, and we can hear them in a disney way where it's happenstance. Like all of a sudden, the wand was waved and the harvest happened. Abracadabra, right? But let's think, just a few verses before, Naomi confesses that she is despairing because the Lord's hand has been turned against her. And yet, now there is a harvest. But harvests don't just happen. In Scripture, there are times when God acts supernaturally and miraculously and bread falls down from heaven. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a harvest that came by the hands of faithful men and women tilling the soil over a long period of time, planting seed, and then rain and sunshine over the course of time, God bringing a harvest. What do I think this means for us? I think today we need to hear that if you are in or when you are in a season and you feel like God's hand is turned against you, you feel like everything in life is going the wrong way. You feel like despair because everything you thought you knew seems to be proving to be untrue, that God is still working behind the scenes, preparing a harvest that you can't see. And you're going to come one day into a type of harvest, and it's going to appear to you as if God snapped his fingers, and just like that it happened. When he was working through faithful people all along, behind the scenes, and you couldn't see it. And I hope that that is encouraging to you, that while you're despairing, there is a barley harvest that is growing. It's unforeseen. But one day, things will turn around, because the Lord is already working on your behalf. So let's go ahead and jump into chapter two. We're going to read the first four verses. We'll stop and then we'll continue. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out "'entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. "'As it turned out, she was working in a field "'belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech.'" Second time this has been mentioned. "'Just then, Boaz arrived from the Lord.'" Like, just in the nick of time, right? "'Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem "'and greeted the harvesters. "'The Lord be with you,' he says. "'The Lord bless you,' they respond. "'Okay, so what is happening?' First, Boaz is identified as a man of standing, while twice in these opening verses, Ruth is called Ruth the Moabite. Now, we're already a whole chapter into the story, like, we we know who Ruth is. So what's the point of calling Ruth the Moabite? I think the author is trying to reinforce the fact that, one, she is an outsider, The author is reminding us what's about to happen is not supposed to happen to her. And he's contrasting that with Boaz is a man of standing, which means at least two things. One, he has prominence in the town, that he has some means of wealth. But it's not just that. It's not just that he's wealthy or he's famous or any of that. It's also that he's a man of upright character that Boaz is not only a person who has the means to do something to help Ruth, but he also has the character to be willing to do it. And these two characters, by the language, are being contrasted, and we're reminded of just how different they are. And then there is this, let me go to the fields and find some grain. Well, that might sound really random to us, but in their culture that was not, it was a practice called gleaning. And it comes from the book of Leviticus chapter 23, where in the, that chapter they're outlining, God is outlining all of the, the stipulations and the requirements for bringing the first fruits of the harvest in as an offering. And then there is this verse that says, and when you harvest the barley, and we're gonna read it at the end of the message, When you harvest the barley and the wheat, don't harvest all the edges. Leave those for the poor and the foreigner. What is happening here? God, right from the beginning, is giving them a practice that reminds them that their calling is to bless all the nations of the earth. That it is so easy for you, for me, for the people of Israel, To become insulated with our relationship with God, where we just think we're so lucky to be called chosen. You notice things like that are only ever said by people who believe they're chosen? Mm -hmm. Right from the beginning, God tells Abraham, I'm going to build a people through you, and they're going to bless the nations of the earth. And then now God is giving them practices for right worship. And included is a way for them to always recognize when they're bringing their offerings in to always be confronted with the poor in a way that causes them and forces them to take some responsibility to provide for them. In other words, right worship always involves loving our neighbor. There's no way to truly faithfully love God and not love our neighbor. We're also reminded here that our needs are met with particularity by particular people. What do I mean? Well, the verse just a couple ago tells us that the famine is gone and that there's a harvest in the land. But what does that mean for Naomi and Ruth? Nothing without Boaz. It means nothing that there are fields full of grain if there's not a particular person who's willing to see them and provide for them from his field. Let that be a reminder to us that it doesn't so much matter what's going on out there when things are thriving and the economy's booming and everybody's got jobs, which I know is not the time we're currently living in, but there are times and seasons like that. And I think in America, it's so easy to just think, well, it's, go get a job, go do this, and forget that every one of us at different points of our lives have been at the mercy of people, individual people who made decisions to help us when we couldn't help ourselves. That it's not enough for the overarching country or the overarching economy or for things to be good in general, because they can still be really bad for people specifically. So they're at the mercy of this man, Boaz. Let's keep reading, starting with verse five. So Boaz, as, Boaz asked the over that was a really close slip-up right there, guys. <laughs> Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters. "Who does that young woman belong to?" The overseer replied, "She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi." She said, "Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters." She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except only a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, watch, keyword, and follow among, along after the other women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she replied. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. That sounds disgusting to me, but that's actually a privilege, just so you know, because I heard that. I was like, gross. I don't want to do that. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Look, listen, these are like secret orders. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull some stalks out from the bundles And leave them for her to pick up, and do not rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. What is an ephah? It's a lot. That's all you need to know. An ephah is a lot. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. So what is happening? Boaz inquires about Ruth, and his field was the first one she came to. And if you remember, Ruth said to Naomi, let me go into the fields, plural, to gather the grain. It would have been very common to go to one field, gather a little bit, go on to the next, gather a little more, until they had enough. But Boaz is immediately showing hospitality and favor and saying, you're going to find all that you need here. The other thing that we should notice is when the narrator is introducing, reintroducing her in chapter two, two times, says Ruth, the Moabite. And then when Boaz speaks directly to her, he says, Ruth, my daughter. Boaz recognizes her as a foreigner and refuses to treat her that way. He refuses to type her. He refuses to put her in a box, to assume that he knows her, to assume that because she's from Moab that he knows everything about her because their people were historically in angst with one another. Boaz extends radical hospitality to her in a number of ways. Listen to all of this. He welcomes her to stay in his field until the harvest is over. He offers her physical protection. He provides the same resources to her as his workers, He invites her to a privileged meal, that's the vinegar thing. He instructs his workers to make it easy for her to get all the grain she needs. Boaz is going above and beyond to recognize her as a foreigner and refuse to treat her that way. He knows that she has needs, and he goes above and beyond to provide needs for her, but not just for her, her and Naomi because Naomi is a long kin of his. We're going to talk about that in two weeks when we talk about the kinsman-redeemer passage and all of that, but let's finish out chapter 2, and then I have two very simple points for us this morning. Verse 19, her mother-in-law asked, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Keyword, notice. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today was Boaz. Ruth has no idea. Here's the following verse. The Lord bless him, Naomi said. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who worked for him? Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the harvey and wheat har- barley. My goodness, and wheat harvests were finished. I would love a harvey harvest. I don't know what that is, but it would be great. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. What are we meant to see? I'm not going to pretend that in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to exhaust this chapter of all the things that we could see that the Lord could illuminate to us. But I think that there are at least two things for the people of this community today to learn from Ruth chapter 2 that are likely going to strike each of us in a little bit different way. What are we meant to see? I think first that God's work in each of the characters is revealed in the way that they care for one another. That both Ruth and Boaz do more than required to assist people in need. Ruth shows loyalty to Naomi when it wasn't necessary, but she found it necessary in her heart. Boaz went above and beyond to provide for Ruth, far beyond what the law required. Why? Because the law had taken shape in his heart. When God's law and his spirit are established in us, remember, what are the two things that this time of Shavuot signify? The the, establishment of the law and the establishment of the church through the giving of the spirit. So when the law and the spirit are established within us, it looks like extending hospitality toward others. In other words, when God is most deeply at work in you, it can't help but make its way out of you to the people around you. And if it's not in our lives, I think we should seriously pause and go to the Lord and consider what he's doing in our lives. If what God is doing in your life isn't touching and impacting the people around you, what is the Lord really doing in you? We cannot be insulated. We're not called to be a people who are insulated. We have been brought into this family as outsiders, as Gentiles to begin with. We are outsiders brought in to the work of God. And I think this looks like two things in this passage. One, noticing. Did you notice, pun intended, how many times the word notice, see, or watch were mentioned in this chapter Verse 1, Ruth says, in whose eyes I find favor. Verse 9, Boaz says, keep your eyes on the field. Verses 10 and 13, two different times, Ruth says, why have I found favor in your sight? And then she repeats and says, oh, that I might continue to find favor in your sight. And then in verse 19, once Naomi discovers who this is, she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. So Boaz notices Ruth. But once he notices her, he chooses to see her. He chooses not just to notice that there's another foreign or poor lady harvesting in his field, but he takes an interest in her. And he calls her Ruth. He doesn't call her the Moabite woman, the woman in need. He says, Ruth, my daughter. Boaz saw beyond her type, her status, or her difference, and he saw her. And here's the thing for us. What we see when we look at other people says more about us than it does them. Have you ever heard of a Rorschach test? I would venture to say probably a handful of us have. A Rorschach test is a psychological tool where they show you a picture that could be multiple things. And what you see when you look at the picture, actually reveals more about what's going on in your brain than what's happening on the page of the picture. And I'm venturing to say this morning that when we see outsiders, what we see says more about us than it does them. Do we see a profile? Do we see a type? Do we see a character flaw in a particular person from the first time we met them, and now forever and always, they're that kind of person? They're that wounded person. They're the loud person, or they're the person who doesn't have any social manners, or whatever. What do we see when we see people? Because behind every person, there's a story. This isn't just a Moabite woman. This is a Moabite woman who was faithful to Boaz's kin, Naomi. This is not just a poor lady. This is a lady who had done something for his people. And if he had just seen her as a Moabite woman, he would have never come to find that out. Every time we're willing to stop and take notice of someone else, we make space for God's work to break through in a way that changes both you and the person who is being seen. Think about that. Every interaction here actually ends up, it's not just Boaz being a savior to Ruth. Boaz's life is changed for the better, but that's for a story in two weeks. The second practice, the first is noticing. Will we be the kind of people who stop and see, stop and notice, and look beyond the surface level of that's just a person who needs help, and find out who is this person? The second is blessing. Did you notice as we read it how many times the words blessing and favor were mentioned in this chapter? I'm going to tell you, just like I did with seeing and noticing. In verse 4, Boaz blesses the harvesters, and they return the blessing. In verse 12, Boaz prays for God's favor to rest on Ruth. In the following verse, Ruth responds and asks for continued blessing from the hand of Boaz. In verse 19... The verse we just read, Naomi blesses the man who took notice of her and provided grain, And once she finds out it was Boaz, she blesses him again by name. God's blessings are only ever properly received when they go beyond us to touch other people. This is one of the themes of this book, the whole book of Ruth. And it was one of the themes I mentioned last week in the introduction. That God's work comes as they work. And one of the very interesting things about this book is every person who sacrifices for someone else actually in the end comes back around to receive the very thing that they sacrificed for someone else in this story. And isn't that the way that God's work takes shape in our lives? Some of us might not know because we might not trust God enough to try it. We might not trust God enough to see other people in need, to sacrifice for people in need, and to bless the people in need. I wanna go back, we're about to close, to Leviticus chapter 23, and read this verse in the context about gleaning of how it's given. So we're here at the end of Leviticus chapter 23, and there have just been instructions given on the Festival of Weeks, which is this, basically Shava, what we've been talking about, and how to prepare the grain offerings to bring in. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live, verse 21, verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of the field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you for I am the Lord, your God. What's happening? I think God is injecting that there's no way for his people to bring proper offerings and offer right worship to him without being confronted with the poor and taking responsibility for them. Caring for our neighbor is not something that Jesus added on to the law. Caring for our neighbor has always been a part of how we worship God. And we see it right there in Leviticus chapter 23 that we should receive God's gifts to us, his blessings. We should receive them as grain to make bread to give to the people around us. And then we will eat from what is left over. And we see this over and over and over again in the life of Jesus. Brian, if you would come We see this nowhere more true than in the life of Jesus, who himself was given as a gift to become an outsider, to see us who were unseen, to provide for us who were unprovided for, to engraft us into the family of God. Think about this. Back to my first story about being in Moscow. Most of us in this room do not tend to think of ourselves as outsiders. And yet, our identity was ones created by God, but made outsiders by sin. And Christ came as an outsider so that one day we could all be insiders with him. Think about this. Think about it. We are sometimes a Boaz to someone in need, but we are always Ruth at the need and the mercy of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. Always. I said this last week. We control so much in our lives that it's easy for us to just feel the depend the interdependent or excuse me, the independence that we have. And it's so easy to forget how much we need the Lord and we need one another because we're not used to feeling like we need mercy. Every one of us in this room need the mercy of Boaz. Christ, our Boaz, of course. As we prepare to come to the the table, let us remember that God cares for us so deeply. He sent his son to become an outsider so that we can become insiders. Jesus cares for us and provides for us, like Boaz, when we were Ruth, helpless, in need, insecure, feeling misplaced and displaced. And Jesus also, like Ruth, commits to us when we feel like Naomi. We're wounded, we're broken, we're disappointed, we're despairing from the state of our lives. And God sent his son to be Ruth to us, to be loyal to us. Stand with us, to do with us what we couldn't do on our own. Let's stand and prepare our hearts to come to the table. But before we do, I want us just to posture our hearts as ones who are in need of mercy, who are in need of provision, who are in need of the Lord coming near to us. Holy Spirit, may we be reminded as we come forward in just a moment to receive these elements that we, we don't just do this to remember. We do this for sustenance. We come and we receive. We expect that you are doing something in this act, that you are nourishing us from the inside out with Christ, his body and his blood, his life. Church, this morning, let's exit out the left side of our pews, of our rows. Come forward and receive the elements. Go back through on the right side, and in just a moment, we will partake together of the body of Christ. This morning we are reminded just how much we need you. And you give yourself to us over and over and over again. And you're preparing a barley harvest for us behind the scenes while we are unaware time and time again. And you are providing roots to us when we are like Naomi and Boaz is to us when we are Ruth over and over and over again. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see it. Let us be the kind of people that notice one another and notice when your hand is at work. And let us be the kind of people that are willing to follow that up with giving our blessings freely. The things that you've placed in our lives, the life that you have given us, I pray that those things never stop with us, but that they would be like seed that we take to make bread to give to other people, and then we will feast on the leftovers. The night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, church. Let us take the body of Christ broken for you and me, and eat. Same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. Let us receive of the blood of Christ shed for you and me. Amen. Thanks be to God. Part of the reason we sing the doxology at the end of every or most every one of our services is to be reminded of the gifts of God to be reminded to look, to see, and to look for the gifts of God in the people we most, we least expect them to come through. So as we sing this, let's ask that the Holy Spirit would be illuminating in us something afresh to see his hand at work in the gifts all around us throughout this week. Let's sing. Praise God to a from whom all... Blessings flow, praise Him, all creatures here below, praise Him. Christ go with us and may we be his faithful presence to every person we encounter. May we be filled with the spirit. May we release the blessings that God has placed in our lives for the sake of the people around us. Go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. New Life Midtown, you are a good church. Go in peace.